Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 34, where we're traveling back to 1976 and the 31st winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Ned Roram for Air Music. So let's just start with Ned Roram, Dave. What do you know about Ned Roram? Ned Roram, well, he's, I don't want to jinx this, because he's still alive. He is still alive. He's 98 years old right now, so a very old composer who's still alive. Uh, But I am holding my well-worn and well-read copy of the Paris and New York Diaries of Ned Roram. And so I probably knew him more for his writings and his extremely entertaining and gossipy and catty they're very catty <laughs> catty uh diaries which are terrific um and well well worth reading we're going to quote from some of them here uh so i i knew him probably from that first and then some of his music later uh, i knew he was mainly a song composer and wrote some other kind of orchestral pieces i had a new world records cd mm. that had a eight it was called eight or 11 etudes or something for orchestra it was it was an interesting piece uh, but yeah he's kind of a legendary figure mm-hmm. um you know very well known as a gay composer and at a time when it was a bit riskier to be that way and uh for being a tonalist and mm-hmm. unapologetically tonal yeah. and not like always you know one four five one it's pretty this piece we're going to find is can be a little bit astringent <laughs> uh but kind of doing his own thing so uh an, an unapologetic and he didn't have a teaching job either which right is he was cool. one of the few composers we've been talking about all these composers who've won the pulitzer who are part of that kind of ivy league world yeah. where they were teaching at columbia or yale or you know one of those big ivy league schools and they kind of pass it off well here's a composer like Aaron Copeland, really the last composer we've talked about who made his living just as a composer. 30 years before? Yeah, 30 yeah. years before. And so here's another composer who makes his living as a composer and very successful. I remember yeah. Yeah, so I, first encou- well, with, I first encountered yeah. him because there was a vogue for his songs when we were in high school, college. There were yeah. tons of people recording them. Everyone was singing them. It seemed like I couldn't go to recital without someone picking Ned Roram as their American yes. 20th century composer. So I heard a ton of his songs, and there are hundreds of songs. The Nantucket songs I remember hearing a Very lot. Very popular. Yeah. So I actually didn't know any of his orchestral music until I heard this one. I hadn't hmm. totally thought of him as a song composer until we listened to this piece. So this was my first kind of exposure to his orchestral music. Had you, uh, in your schooling, read any of the excerpts? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you can be a musicologist studying 20th century music and not read Ned Roram. Yeah. Because it really captures kind of the zeitgeist of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. I mean, if you want to know, he he name drops everyone. Everyone. Every French. Well, he was in France for, obviously, the Paris Diaries. So he was hanging out with Poulenc and Aurique and all of the the Lacy composer. Then he comes back to New York and he writes New York diaries yep. and he yep. knows everyone there. Hanging out with Bernstein and Copeland and all, knows everybody and name drops and, and lots of details too. Uh, Some details you <laughs> didn't want to know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, speaking about the zeitgeist at the time, maybe you should tell the story. Telling the story. So 
So, yes, Ned Rorum was a Midwest, also another difference here. He's a Midwestern composer and uh, born in Indiana, but then mainly grew up in Chicago. So we haven't had a lot of Midwestern composers, mm -hmm. almost a lot of the East Coast. So that's kind of a different thing. And I like the story about the introduction. To yeah, I love, I found this quote, of course. The wonderful thing about talking about Ned Rorum is there's so many great quotes yes. you can use. But he grew up in Chicago, like we said. His father was a professor of economics, and he started learning music early. And he said, so I went off to a black piano teacher. There weren't many little white boys <laughs> taking the bus to those parts in those days. But this is fascinating. He says, that was Margaret Bonds, who was also a composer. In my first lessons, she introduced me to the music of Griffiths, Debussy, and Ravel, and I was intoxicated by it. I started writing pieces immediately. She said... She would take them down, would do the dictation, and then she said, you need to start writing your pieces down yourself. So I did. But this is fascinating yeah. that he was studying with Margaret Bonds. I went back and looked, and this is not really mentioned like in her hmm. biography where people are talking about, because she was well-known as a composer in Chicago, a yep. uh, black female composer, really some uh, firsts uh, in terms of what she was able to accomplish. But almost nowhere in her output, in her biography, it says... She was Ned Roram's first <laughs> composition teacher. I found this absolutely fascinating. And even more so what she influenced him to listen to, which goes to the aforementioned French music mm -hmm. of Griffiths, Debussy, Ravel, and he was intoxicated by French music. So uh, I, don't, I don't know any of Bonds's music, but uh, I don't know if maybe it sounds like that too or has some Well, she's that. really known for uh, especially modern uh, arrangements of African-American spirituals. Okay. So that's where I've really encountered a lot of her music. And that's what uh, really gets performed today, mm. but still very tonal, very straightforward. So you get that kind of idea, but there are some kind of impressionistic harmonies in there. And I think that that mm -hmm. clearly influenced uh, what you see in Ned Rorm's music ultimately. So this really kind of pivotal influence early on that I had no idea until we started doing this research was even there. And when would this, so if he's a little boy then, basically, so he was born in 1923. This would have been so in the 30s. The 30s, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the height of the Depression, he's going and taking <laughs> piano and composition <laughs> lessons for Margaret Bonds. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Well, he, in terms of his uh, output, he's got a lot of everything. There's operas, there's an Our, Our Town, uh, the Thornton Wilder play. Uh, he's got a really cool couple piano concertos, which I've, I really enjoy. Uh, so a lot of piano music. Uh, and it is, a lot of it is kind of that uh, pitch-centric type music. And I'm wondering, how do you think somebody like that, you know, they, they, people like Roram don't get discussed. And I, I guess I'm, as a theorist, partially responsible for some of this. Uh, but in 20th century classes, of 20th century music classes, we don't talk about the, you know, the quote you have here is uh, highly accessible, tonal, melodic, often bearing a lush romantic cast. We don't really talk about that music. So why, why do you think that is in, in terms of Rorum? Why is he not discussed? Well, I think it goes back. So we've just been talking about Elliot Carter a few episodes yeah. ago for the second time. Carter has been voluminously covered by music theorists and musicologists. And I think it's because he really fits into what theorists want to look at systems and systems and you can kind of go through and figure out how it works and the intricacies of it and there's just so much in there for a theorist when you talk about someone like ned Rorum, 
it's more about the affect, it's more about the emotion, it's more about the expression, something that we associate with the 19th century. So if we're going to look at someone like Ned Roram, why would we do that instead of Schubert? Oh, yeah. I think would yeah. be kind of the, the argument that would be made, even though the music is really interesting. And I think when we start looking at air music here in a little bit, that yeah. there's some fascinating things going on in that music. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, there's also an, an interesting kind of, I want to give you a quote, another quote from his diaries, um, talking about a, another previous Pulitzer winner that he had uh, lessons with, and that's Virgil Thompson. Yes. So he said, one New York evening long ago at Virgil Thompson's with Maurice Grosser and Lou Harrison, the four of us planned to dine in, and as the maid was absent, we proposed preparing the meal ourselves. Just got This pause. is already like... <laughs> I can't handle this. I got to pause. Just the, the maid was absent throwaway line there. <laughs> so you're getting a sense of the level at which he operated in terms yes. of the privilege the that elite is around New Nedora. York. Yeah. All right. So everyone bustled about, everyone but me. I stood around inefficiently, not knowing how to behave. I've always disliked domestic cooperation. <laughs> Maurice, peeved by my usual vagueness, handed me knives and forks saying, here, make yourself useful. But Virgil piped, Leave Ned alone. Ned doesn't have to work. Ned's a beauty. <laughs> Since birth, I had lived by this slogan. I'll always be a spoiled child, but never lose track of to what extent. Nor, I presume, will Virgil. I was working with him then as a copyist in exchange for orchestration lessons, every lucid word of which I'll always remember, and 20 bucks a week, of which I banked five. Such thrift impressed him, just as I was impressed by his thrift with notes. And so I composed my first songs with an instinctive formal economy, which I've since tried vainly to recapture. Hmm. That is fascinating and, and captures so much about him and his ethos and character. Uh, wow. I'm just still trying to picture a party with that, <laughs> that crowd of people. Because Maurice Grosser was uh, uh, Virgil Thompson's partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, wow. Okay. <laughs> and Virgil saying... Ned's a Ned's beauty, a beauty. <laughs> which he was, but yeah, that's very true. So in a sense, beauty is kind of a, a theme in a lot of his mm -hmm. music. It is very lush, lyrical, romantic, and uh, I think he values that in his aesthetic, which is kind of fascinating as we get to air music here and go behind the notes to see if that continues in this piece that did win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Behind the Notes. Okay, so I want to start with another quote. We just have tons we have, of... I've got, yeah, I've got a lot So of many here. quotes today, yep. but another quote from Ned Roram, where he was just describing his compositional ethos. This was a, a quote from an interview that the New York Times did a couple of years ago, and they were interviewing Ned Roram because he basically was saying, I'm done with composing. I'm too old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't need to compose anymore. And he said, I myself am incapable of digging electronics or aleatorics. Anyway, I've never run with the pack, composing according to fashion. I've always been a lone wolf, composing according to need. Mm. So I think that's a good kind of background to this particular music, air music, and what he was trying to accomplish and where it came from uh, and what he was doing with it. I think that's true. And yet, even with all that, with incapable of digging electronics, I like the language, or aleatorics, he did have a respect for other kinds of music. He wrote a fascinating uh, essay about the Beatles in 1968. Of course he did. Of course he did, yeah. And he said he preferred to go to Beatles, hear Beatles than go to a concert of Beethoven or the same pieces he'd heard. Uh, and he was pointing out the stylistic traits of Beatles songs that 
really uh, were attractive to him. And in this piece, I think and one of those things was the was diversity of different styles and different instrumentations. This is a good example of that kind of thing. It's it's you know my least favorite form is. is theme and variations, but this is actually a little better because it's not a theme. There's just ten variations for orchestra in air music, and each movement has a different instrumentation. And you've got some chamber groups, you've got uh, the the full group plays, and some unusual timbre combinations. Yeah, I thought about that when I saw 10 Variations for Orchestra being the subtitle. Uh, I know. Oh, Dave's going to love this go. piece. He's going to think it's absolutely the best. Well, historically, the piece actually uh, initiated as a film score. That This is really is fascinating. Yeah. A movie called Panic in Needle Park, With Al Pacino's, Al Pacino's seen first yeah. film. He wrote the score, and as often happens in Hollywood, they cut the entire score. They said, we don't need it after all. Um, decided the movie didn't even need music, uh, original score at all. So Roram basically went to his publisher, Boozy and Hawks, and said, I would love to have this music back as long as it's not used in a film. They said, sure, you can do whatever you want with it. And so he began to rework it into this piece, Air Music. So fascinating that it had this very practical beginning and then becomes this very kind of, I mean, I don't want to say impractical, but <laughs> a piece that just exists for itself. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes a lot of sense if you know that movie. It's about a heroin addiction in New York, and it was kind of a like, very gritty movie for the times, early 1971 or something like that. And uh, I can see some of the music would fit mm -hmm. well, given what, what's going on. It's about Al Pacino's a, a junkie, and he has a girlfriend, and they're and drug addicts and kind of their daily lives and the, some of the rough places they have to go mm -hmm. and the things they get into. So it kind of makes sense. But yeah, it was refashioned into a, a straight up orchestral piece. Uh, and I have a good, another good quote here. It was written for the Cincinnati Symphony with Tom, Tom, Thomas Shippers, who was another uh, American composer, kind of a hot star uh, who recorded a lot of opera, and he was good friends with uh, Barber and Minotti. He was in that group. And uh, so it says, Roram says, in Cincinnati, this is on December 5th, uh, I guess 1975, in Cincinnati for the new piece, if sound were taste, Tommy Shippers' version of air music would resemble the best sour cream mashed with, ha with hand-picked gooseberries, smooth without slickness, tart without bitterness, a healthful dessert. An unexpected surprise is that the music does sound like air, like a mean wind through flaming leaves of you, a barrel of ice cubes flung into an enamel aviary, and so forth. Why air music? Because sound goes in one ear and out the other like air through organ pipes or through the laryngeal tunnels of fabulous vocalists, and thus is heard all sound. He's an amazing writer. Oh, he's really good. What a colorful yeah. uh, description I mean, of it. In many ways, he kind of is the successor to Virgil Thompson. Uh, yeah. In terms yeah. of song and in terms of oh, yeah. writing. Yeah, very much so. And then uh, to go along with that, he says, Ironically, I won the, the Pulitzer for an orchestral rather than a vocal piece. My reputation, such as it is, has always centered around song. Air music is a half-hour work in 10 balletic sections, each of which uses smallish and unusual groups of instruments. Yet, although the sections are, as they say, abstract, in that they eschew the human voice vocally, don't mean anything, I conceive them as I conceive all music vocally. 
It's always the singer within me crying to get out. So I can totally, totally see that uh, as I was listening to it. So to me, one of the more interesting and unusual movements is the fourth movement. Yes. For tuba, violin with flutes, oboe, English horn, contrabassoon, and violins. What a combination. Fascinating combination. Yeah. And I don't know why tuba players aren't clamoring to play this all the time because yeah. the tuba sounds like it's singing. I thought we'd just listen a little bit to that because it really is some of the most beautiful tuba writing <laughs> I've almost ever heard. So this is a, a little bit of the fourth movement. just gorgeous yes that's yeah. that line just singing out over this kind of astringent, astringent <laughs> pad yeah, it's really absolutely beautiful yeah that uh, that movement really stands out as does the next one to or the one with the trombone and cello mm. i found really fascinating as well as the solo viola one i like that one the bassoon four horns and mm. harp mm-hmm. yeah they are they it's fascinating that the timbral colors and that's why i'm interested with the quote that you have where he has all these descriptive words because it is i mean it's painting yeah in, in very interesting ways because of these tone colors that he's chosen to to put together here so let me ask you then does this piece is it abstract uh because it's it, well it's abstract if you don't know what what we just talked about or what we read but is there anything to latch on to in terms of its construction to me, it was interesting that I didn't feel like there was a through line going through all 10. No. Each one was completely self-contained. I didn't see how they held together as a whole set. But each individually, I see how they hold together, that you begin with um, an idea, and then the rest of the movement is basically kind of organic growth out of that idea. And that's, I think, where he gets the idea of it being a, a variation, that you keep hearing, like that solo tuba line we just played, it gets expanded, it gets contracted throughout that movement, but it doesn't show up anywhere else. Right, right. Yeah, so it's a variation on itself. Yeah. I guess each each movement or each variation would be... I can take that a little more than a you theme and variation that's less formulaic here because each each one is so different. Uh, and the, the full orchestra ones really stand out because they're just like harsh. A lot, a lot of them are very harsh blasts of... Well, especially the opening Clusters. and the closing, because yes. the, the first movement and the 10th movement are the entire orchestra. Yeah. And when I was listening to that first movement, I thought, is this really Ned Rorm? I had to go back and double I check know. because it was so dissonant. Yeah, it's it very dissonant, very, uh, it reminds me of the Schoenberg summer colors, mm. just kind of the, just the, the color, shimmer. Yeah, shimmering of it and the, the sound. So very uh, uh, very diverse in its musical style and techniques here so you've got all different kinds of you know that like that lush lyrical type melodies over some pretty harsh uh, you've also dissonance. i want to play one other movement yeah. that's the fifth which is three clarinets three trumpets snare drums solo snare drum. violins strings pizzicato which to me see after i play this but to me it sounds like he's channeling stravinsky it's got mm. a really kind of stravinskyian uh, mode to it but this is the fifth movement Thank you. 
very Stravinskyan, like sort of sounds like Hindemith, kind of that mm, mm-hmm. early Hindemith. Uh, I don't know, it's a cabaret, but it's kind of that. It reminded me of Soldier's Tale. So yeah, but it's that's very much like Lee Star. Yeah. And part of part of it is the the instrumentation, but also yeah. just the the multiple meters that are going on, and that everyone seems to be doing their own thing, and then they come together. It's a really fascinating movie. Yeah, very effective. And then he also shows another influence. I think in it might be the the viola movement, but it sounds like Copland, mm. are very much more tonal and has that lyricism and the open four of fourths quartal quintal harmonies and sounds like Copland. It does. It also is the most boring movement. It, I thought. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> Not a viola fan. <laughs> well, that's one of the longest movements, it and it does long. have this kind of expansive feel to it. About halfway through, I looked at my watch. Yeah, <laughs> How long yeah. is this going? And going to go on. Wears out its welcome. I know. I guess I just liked it because it had four horns. Well, of course. So, uh, sorry, I'm so a the sucker. four horns outbalances the variations. Uh, it, yeah, that's right. There you go. You can, <laughs> We're getting on the Dave hierarchy. <laughs> of take whatever I can get here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I, strangely, I've found very little analysis of the actual music itself. So I would be curious if somebody would do an analysis and see what's going on from a technical perspective. Cause we can hear a lot of stuff mm-hmm. we're just talking about. You can hear, but in terms, you know, Roram's very unsystematic or he, he eschews systems as he says. So I wonder what is used here. Uh, it was fascinating that among Pulitzer winners, especially of a composer of Ned Roram's stature, there's almost no critical writing on this piece of music. No. No. Just doesn't exist. It's almost as if people go, and he won the Pulitzer for air music. Now let's talk about his opera, or yes. let's talk about his songs, or let's talk about his piano concerto, whatever. Yeah. But they kind of mention it and move on. Maybe it's because it's it is a bit of an anomaly in his output, maybe at that time too, mm-hmm. a straight up orchestral piece that doesn't have a lot of the typical features that you would expect in a Rorum piece. I don't know. It was performed a lot, as we're going to talk about. We're going to get into the reaction of it. But, yeah, maybe that's... I'd be curious to see what, why it didn't get any attention. Yeah, the longevity of this particular one. Yeah. Well, maybe that is a good time to talk about if this is a hit or a miss. Yes. Hit or miss? All right, so... Uh, we'll go to the jury report, and this is going to be very interesting, I think, for you. Okay. Uh, so, Andrew, I'm going to tell you that the winner of the Pulitzer Prize in 1976 is Lamia by Jacob Druckmann. What? <laughs> oh, oh, did I make a mistake? Is that... Wait a minute here. Let me read this report. The 1976 Pulitzer Prize Music Jury strongly recommends that this year's Pulitzer Prize in Music be awarded to Jacob Druckmann. Okay, this is fascinating. Uh huh. For the work Lamia, which ten years since we had a good scandal. I know, (laughs) I know. This is a good one too, which was premiered by the New York Philharmonic at Avery Fisher Hall in 1975. It is an orchestral work of major proportions. Okay, the present version of Lamia embodies a major addition and revision of the original work premiered and results in a substantially new statement. Our second choice is Air Music by Ned Rorum. The runner-up. Runner-up. Premiered by Cincinnati Symphony, which in our opinion ranks considerably below the Druckmann work. 
but nevertheless allows a new facet of Roram's talent and, in our judgment, is his finest orchestral work to date. It also makes brilliant use of the orchestral medium and is cast in a series of effective virtuoso etudes for that medium. So what happened here? This was signed by Vincent Persichetti, chair, and Gunther Schuller. There were only two members of the jury. Oh, interesting. Because our uh, friend of the podcast, Hugo Weisgall, withdrew from the judging because of a composing commitment, an opera about to be premiered, and the jury was unsuccessful in obtaining the services of another juror who had served before. However, their choices were unanimous. Interesting. So what happened? Well, from another uh, source I found, because I, try- I couldn't find anything about it, this time the advisory board was not convinced by the quality of composition on a part of the jury's favorite and gave the award to the runner-up, Ned Roram, who received it for air music. So, so here, 10 years after, they had two years where the full... Pulitzer jury overrode the music jury. Once again, we see that happening. This time, Jacob Druckmann yeah. gets sidelined in favor of Ned Roram. <laughs> yes. So, fascinating uh, situation here. We didn't have any when leave the jury or resign no, in protest no or write a letter or, to the New York Times. No, but they're, yeah. And I don't know if, if Ned Roram knew this or if anybody knew this at the time. Because, uh, as I said, I, I really had a hard time finding any scholarship or research on this topic but for all intents and purposes Ned Roram was the winner and there you have it so uh, it was premiered and this is a a concert here Virgil Thompson fanfare for the Cincinnati Symphony's 200th birthday then a Mozart uh, fifth violin concerto then a a piece by Vitali Chacon in G minor and some Baroque composer then intermission was air music, and then Smetana, Sharka from Mavlast. So very uh, curious program of a, a very a potpourri of yeah. lots of things on there, from Mozart to Smetana to a Baroque piece to Thompson and Worm. So, so the range of the orchestra, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, they also gave special citations this year. So being 1976, the bicentennial year, the jury decided to give a special award to Scott Joplin. So this is the second time we've seen them give a special award. This time it says, a special award is bestowed posthumously on Scott Joplin in this bicentennial year for his contributions to American music. So Scott Joplin was having a renaissance in the early 1970s. People were interested in rags. Uh, Again, 1973 was The Sting, which just used Joplin's music. So everyone loved Joplin at this time. Um, but I also wonder if they're making up for missing giving that special citation to Duke Ellington back yeah. in 1965. The jury beginning to kind of see, oh, well, maybe we should award these kind of outstanding individuals through a special citation, even if they never got a Pulitzer. And if they weren't aren't in the the genre or in the because right. cur- Scott Joplin isn't, I mean, not really a classical composer, nor is Duke Ellington considered that way. So they're coming up with these special citations and the timing is, uh, I, I think 1976 That's might've exactly also why. the bicentennial might've been a good reason for that. So two great American composers, uh, Roram and, uh, Joplin being recognized. And what did Roram think about getting the Pulitzer? Well, this is really fascinating, especially given the fact that he was actually the runner up. I know, I know. <laughs> but he said in a, in a later, 
interview that he never counted on the Pulitzer. I never counted it on it, not because I felt I was, uh, I felt undeserving, but because academics presumably frowned on my wayward ways <laughs> that the judges should prove unbiased fills me with cheer for the establishment. <laughs> Except there is no more establishment. Composers of every size and shape phoned or wrote, though very few performers. That's because doers and makers move in quite separate professional, hence social orbits. Players face out, composers in. So I just love this, that they proved unbiased <laughs> in giving me the runner-up prize. <laughs> I know. That's... But clearly he felt proud of yeah. winning the Pulitzer. It was a very meaningful award for him. And then later on in that same diary entry, it says, uh, the, he wrote a, a self-question. What does the Pulitzer mean? It means the kind of honor that allows your basic fee to go up. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond that, it's a joy to play with, like a new sled, which you finally put away and go back to work. Ever the practical Ever the, I know. <laughs> get, right, get a couple back of, to work. A couple, yeah. <laughs> couple more dollars. Yeah, exactly. So there's one more citation, another special citation that came out this year for someone that we've mentioned several times on this podcast, and that's John Hohenberg. Yes! Special citation, an antique plaque inscribed by all the members of the advisory board expressing appreciation for his services for 22 years as a minister of the Pulitzer Prizes and for his achievements as teacher and journalist. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. From Chalmers Clifton to uh, John Hohenberg to all these other great people. I like the, the idea of the antique plaque. Inscribed. Yes. yes. That's that's pretty great. Yeah. So a special citation for his work for the Pulitzer. So he got a special Pulitzer for administering the Pulitzers. <laughs> now that is if that isn't the, the head of the tail. Like, I know. <laughs> exactly. My goodness. Wow. All right. So time to uh, make a decision here. Is this is Air Music by Ned Roram a hit or a miss? Okay. So for me, it's actually a miss. Like there are parts of it that I appreciate. Uh, like I played the fourth and the fifth movements there. I love those movements. I think they're really, really outstanding. Then you get to the eighth movement. Like I said, it's just yeah. boring. <laughs> but the whole thing to me doesn't hold together as a cohesive whole. I don't feel yeah. like it's a piece of music. I feel like it's this small collection, and I don't see how they go together. Um, so to me, it wasn't convincing on a whole. I think that's maybe why today it really doesn't get performed very much. Mm. I can see someone saying, let's just perform a movement or two. Because they are completely standalone. But like the tuba movement or like something. Like the tuba movement. Yeah. Here's three minutes of orchestral with tuba, and we'll just kind of put it in, and you get to show off your tuba player in the ensemble. But as a whole, it really didn't hold together for me. What about you, Dave? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed because I like Roran's music a lot, and I'm disappointed that I also have to give this one a miss. Uh, I found it, I thought it was too long, and... One of the yeah, one of those movements was maybe it was the the viola one was six over six minutes and it just really mm, at, towards the end of the work kind of dragged. Mm -hmm. I thought it st the piece starts out well mm -hmm. and kind of grabs your attention and it's got a lot of timbral techniques and uh, it has its its moments. But as a entire piece, I, I would prefer other Roram works. So I. It's a it's an interesting question because did he win for the wrong piece? I, mean, I think if, that actually is true. As we're going to find some composers later, especially a, a certain minimalist I'm thinking of, who it's not a bad piece, but uh, it's probably should have won in the probably should have won this <laughs> this year actually or close to this year for something else. But it, so winning you know winning for the wrong piece, but 
Uh, I don't know, but does it does it make you want to listen to Jacob Druckmann's Lamia it does, to see actually. If, uh, <laughs> if it's a better work than air music? If we should have trust the experts and not let people like John Hohenberg yeah. make these choices, <laughs> even if they are giving a special citation for their work. Right, right. So I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, unfortunately, uh, listen to it yourself and see what you think. But uh, I think both of us are giving it sadly a miss. So that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short biography where you can read more about Ned Roram. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And we've been posting recently because there's been a, a big up uh, furor to recognize Duke Ellington and the 1965 debacle. So uh, check out our Facebook page and, and our Twitter uh, handle for links and articles about that. Finally, join us next episode when we return to another work for mezzo-soprano and instruments. Let me contain my excitement here. Uh, this time, Richard Wernick's Visions of Terror and Wonder. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.